All right, let's go to the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, today I want to talk to you about living as the beloved. Today's sermon is actually the application of last week's sermon. You go, well, how could you get a whole sermon out of that? (laughs) Well, you'll see. That's not going to be a problem. And I know some of you thought uh, it's not going to be a problem at all. Let me begin to read Luke chapter 10, verse 1, and then uh, I'll kind of walk us through what I'm wanting to do this morning. Luke chapter 10, verse 1 says, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two in every town and place where he himself was about to go. Now, let me set the context from verse 1 here and understand what we're talking about in this passage of Scripture. Jesus is hosting a training seminar for his followers. That's basically what he's doing here. He's teaching them, but, you know, a little bit of knowledge and then a lot of practice, right? Uh, a little bit of knowledge and a whole lot of practice just to learn to implement the truths that he's laid down for them. And that's what he's doing. And he includes here not just the 12 disciples, but he adds 72 more to that. I think that's important for us because he's telling us this, that that faithfully following Jesus and doing the labor of the gospel to, to share the gospel with all people is not a special ops kind of scenario for only the elite Christians, but it is the work of every redeemed believer in Jesus Christ. And so he pairs them up two by two because mission is never a matter of superstar men mentality or lone ranger, but he puts us together in relationship through community to serve his kingdom to see more people come to faith in Jesus Christ. You know, trainings like this are important that we might learn to apply and learn how to live out the, the basic and fundamental truths of what Christ has done in us. Some of you have heard me tell this story before, but The Springfield Police Department uh, chose me to help them with their SWAT training uh, one time. And I was so honored uh, that they would sense in me uh, uh, something that was really valuable for the police department SWAT training, right? And I was thought, well, if I can be a help to them, I'm just here to serve. Uh, And so, um, but I thought, you know, it's probably you know, my knife handling abilities or, I mean, there's something there that they've seen that is really valuable for law enforcement, I'm sure. So uh, the officer that invited me, I met him that morning. We ate breakfast and you just, you know, chit-chatting around. We finally went out to the training place where they were going to train. And, and I got to meet all the officers that were training that morning. They shook my hand. They thanked me for my willingness to sacrifice my time and other things to volunteer. And that kind of got me a little curious. What else am I sacrificing? I'm not really sure. And right before, uh, right before we... Um, began the training exercise, the officer that invited me said to me, hey, I want you to know we're doing this because we're demonstrating our skills for the new police chief today. So everybody's going to really be on cue. And whatever you do, when they come into the house to take you, don't flinch or they will light you up. I'm going to need somebody to tell me what light you up actually means. We're I, I know, we're, like, this is exercise. This is training. This is not the real thing. Training is important because it, it, it helps you 
accelerate and, and, and to excel in those areas where you need help. And so I went back into my position and the guy who was uh, an officer who was kind of giving me my cues and helping me know the best case scenario because I would have surrendered right off the bat. I was done when I heard light you up. But he said, look, um, here's the scenario. You are an ex-con drug dealer that just got out of prison. Uh, you've taken kidnap to your former associates and you held them up in this house and you've determined you're not coming out without a fight. <laughs> no, no. And then he said, when they break through the front door, you're going to bust a cap, shoot two cops, and then you're going to run to the back room. No, no, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this. I hope in some way that training session helped the Springfield SWAT team. But I don't feel like if I am ever an ex-con drug dealer who kidnaps two of his former associates, holds them in the house uh, when they're coming in to serve the warrant, I don't think I've had enough training to be successful in that event. Jesus was training his followers so that they understood what it looked like to live in obedience to him. Practice is important, isn't it? Jesus is teaching us how to follow him. He's teaching us how to serve his kingdom. And, and as the title of today's message, Living as the Beloved, says, he's teaching us how we live as people who have been loved by God through Jesus Christ. And that's what he wants to show us today. You know, what we're going to see in this passage is that when Jesus gives the Great Commission, a couple of uh, years later from the time of this passage itself, sometimes we think about the Great Commission to go into all the world, make disciples of all people as this grandiose, you know, a moment that Jesus had built up for. But it really was just Jesus telling them yet one more, one last time what he'd been saying all along. Because he's going to give the great commission in this passage here in Luke chapter 10. He's teaching them, friends. He's training them how we live as the beloved. It's not about perfect performance. It's about faithful obedience. It's about just living as we've been loved. It's about being who we've been created and redeemed to be. So that others can come to know how much God loves them and say yes by putting saving faith in Jesus for salvation. Last week, I started a new series called Build. And it's based off of the quote from Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus says, I will build my church. And you know, in a season, you might have realized this morning or, or, or seen as you came in, uh, that, that we're, we're building a new facility on the north part of this building right here. And I, I want us to take a moment and to acknowledge this. Number one, we are immensely grateful for all of the blessings that God has done among us as a church. We, we cannot understate our gratitude for that. And we are adding new facility space so that we can increase and expand our ministries. There's no question about that. We as a church went through a season of just discerning the Lord's will and coming to the point Point where we knew this was the step of faith that we were to take next. But what we are building out there with concrete, steel, glass, and otherwise is not the church that Jesus is building. That's just a fruit of it. And I want us to stay focused on the mission, the agenda, if you will, that God has given us to, to see that every person has the opportunity to hear the good news of Jesus Christ and to grow in a relationship with him. We are immensely excited about what God is doing such that we need more space. But the reason God is doing that is the very center of what I'm talking about this morning. 
How do we live so that more Jesus becomes uh, uh, the defining characteristic of our church's life so that more people come to saving faith in him so that every Christ follower is transformed more and more into the image of Jesus among us. That's what I want us to look at today, how we labor for more Jesus in all of our life. And what I want us to see is that Jesus sends Christ followers, all of them, into the world to live as his beloved by laboring for his kingdom harvest. And that's where we find ourselves in chapter 10, verse 1 of the Gospel of Luke. When Jesus organized his followers, he sent them out. And that word for sent is far more than just a directional command. It is an application, we will learn, of his sovereign authority on their lives so that when they go, they don't go in their own authority. They go in his authority because they're not doing their own work. They're doing his work. And that's what they've submitted their lives to. I want to offer to you three what I'll call principled practices. They are three principles, but they are principles that are intended to be put into practice that we might labor for more Jesus, more people who believe, more likeness of Jesus for every Christ follower, and more Jesus as the defining characteristic of this group of people here called Life Point. And I hope and pray today that As you are with us, if you come to the place in your life where you realize today you've never come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, you've never turned from your sin and put your faith in him, that today you'll do that. And we'll see the testimony of God's saving grace in your life, just like we've seen in those who followed him through the waters of baptism today. Here's the first principled practice. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. But I think we need a lot of practice at it. Pray. Pray. Look at verse 2 of chapter 10. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Friends, the only thing that Christ followers should do more than talking to other people about Jesus is talking to Jesus about those other people. Lord, what do you want for them? Lord, how can I be an influence for godliness and for salvation in their life? And that's what Jesus is teaching and wants to train his followers in. You see, for the Christian, prayer is our first act of love and our first labor for mission. Because when we pray, something far greater than our work alone takes place. When we pray, God works. God has ordained that his people would pray and that would be a catalyzing Uh, 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 initiating labor for his work to take place in the world. It's not to say that he's doing nothing until we pray. No, what he's wanting to do is to bring us in to the eternal mission of salvation for people. And he's offering us and partnering with us to bring us into the story of salvation that he is writing. And so prayer always forms our first and our most complete labor in loving other people. When we pray for people, we love them in the most complete way that we can love them because God is working and God works in their heart and life. Never underestimate the value of prayer. Never let it be secondary 
but always let it be the first act of love and the first labor of mission. The prayer that Jesus teaches here really has two aspects that I want to look at this morning. First of all, he says uh, to pray for harvest laborers. Why? Because the harvest is ready right? So like, like, like they tell me, I'm not a farmer, but they tell me that farmers can look on the fields and they can see that the harvest is ready because the grains and the heads have begun to show themselves. And they look at the field and go, man, they're white for harvest. They're ready. We can see the readiness of them. And what Jesus says in our prayers first and foremost is he wants us to look at the world in the same way that he sees it as a harvest that is ready to be harvested. This is not about praying just for life improvement or tangible blessing. Those things can be important and those things uh, where we pray for the cares and concerns of our life. He's not saying those things aren't important, but what he's saying is when we pray for the harvest and with the first energy of our prayers, we should see the world as he sees it, that he wants to save and pray to that very end, prioritizing the need of people who are far from Jesus to meet and come into a saving relationship relationship with him. The Bible tells us that when Jesus looked on the crowd in the gospels, he took compassion for them. He was moved by them because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And you know what the Greek word for sheep without a shepherd is? Dinner. Dinner. That's the way the wolves would see them and the predators would see them as prey. Jesus looked upon those who were helpless and hopeless and he didn't cast them off, but rather he walked into the midst of them to be God's love for them. And that's the way Jesus wants us to pray for a world that is lost and dying and is long separated from God, but is not hopeless because God's people are here. Praying for harvest laborers focuses on gospel redemption, friends. Our prayers focus on praying for people to come from death to life. From an ignorance of God, not just a knowledge about God, but ignorance meaning the absence of that relationship with God into what Luke calls the knowledge of salvation. So that we don't just know about God, but we know God in a relationship with him. That's how our prayers should be directed. And then we need to pray for harvest laborers. Pray that more would obey God to labor for spiritual harvest. Listen, friends. Before evangelism becomes some kind of a gift or some kind of a special calling for anyone, it is God's commission on everyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ. And sometimes we weird out at the word evangelism, but what God fundamentally calls every Christian to be is faithful in their witness. Just tell what you know. Tell somebody what God has done for you and let that lead to telling them about what he has done so they can know him too. That's what Jesus is wanting to help people with here. Let me give you five words that characterize this idea of praying for the harvest because this is what Jesus is communicating to us in verses one and two. First of all, he's telling us to pray earnestly. That's what the the Bible literally says when it says uh, pray earnestly for the harvest. that, That word is really just one word in the original language, pray. 
But the distinct word for pray that he uses supercharges it. And so the English translation adds the word earnest to it to help us understand that this is not just ritual or activity, but rather it has specific engagement. We pray earnestly. We pray with an intensity factor to our prayers and literally rooted in and flowing out of our heart. We're begging God that he would give to us souls for the harvest of salvation. And so our prayer should be characterized by earnest prayers of desperation and urgency for God to save people. Secondly, we need to be praying continually. Praying continually, letting the people and the situations and circumstances that we find around our life, not just on or in our life, but around our life that we're praying for, we need to let those inform the prayers that we have. That when we're laboring alongside God, we we can listen to the words of our friends and our our acquaintances and our neighbors and our co-workers and our family members. We can listen to their words and we can inform our prayers and the way we pray for them by what they're saying and what they're doing. So we're hearing from them. And you know, listening is one of the most loving things that you can have someone do for you, is it not? You know, I heard you say says, I love you in ways that I love you sometimes falls short of. Listening is one of the greatest expressions of love that we can offer to other people. And listening when, when we don't even have to, like just because we cared enough to listen to them in their life. Friends, that says I'm loving you when you're not even here to receive it. When, when, when you're not even paying attention to what I'm doing, I'm loving you. Let the things you hear from people and let the uh, situations of their life and what you see help you to continue steadfastly in prayer, Paul says in Philippians 4.2, that you might be watchful in it with thanksgiving. Let me tell you why Paul says that. You know, sometimes we think of thanksgiving as I just need to be more grateful so I'll be less selfish, right? More grateful so I don't complain as much. But that's not actually what Paul is telling us here. He says, pray continuously, being watchful and with thanksgiving, not so we can just change our attitude, but it will change your attitude. But rather so we are aware of what God is doing and not just what we're ought to or supposed to be doing. You see that? When he says continue steadfastly in prayer, you're posturing your life not just about the things that concern you, but to be aware, you're watchful. You're watching for the things that concern God that are breaking his heart, that he is doing in the world, that he is working in other people's lives. And when we do that, we do become grateful because we see the work of God in the world. One of the things that it's most easy for us to forget is, you know, God, you just sent me out here to do this all by myself, didn't you? I'm all alone in this situation. No, 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 friends. Continue steadfastly that you might be watchful and thankful that you see God at work because where you see God at work, we'll see here in a moment, is the very point at which he wants to invite you in to join him to be that faithful witness. Pray continually. Pray specifically. God, I pray that you'll save everyone in the world. That is a legitimate prayer, but it's a legitimate prayer to begin with and not to end with. Pray specifically, friends. 
Think about the people in your life and think about the people around your life that, that you see every day, you interact with on, uh, or with regularity or, or even on occasion and think about how it is that, that you can pray specifically for their life. Are there people that you know are far from God? Jesus is teaching us and training us here. Put them on your prayer list and ask God to save them. Pray for them by name. Tell them you're praying for them. This is not covert, friends. This is outward in every extent of the way. Let them know, I just want you to know I'm praying for you. And if there's ever anything I can pray specifically for, let me know. Right? You say, well, they might be offended. Trust me, friends, they very well might be. It's okay. It's okay. God will take care of that. Pray continually. Pray specifically. Pray expectantly. Faith. To pray knows that the Lord is working, not if he will work, but when and how he will invite you in to where he is already working. Listen, we of all people, this sounds ridiculous for me to say, but I must say it. We of all people as Christians should understand this. God wants to save people. There's something about him sending his only begotten son to die upon the cross that should never let us forget that. And you say, but you don't know some of the people I know. No, but I know some of the people you don't know. And I guarantee you, they're just like the people you know that I don't know. Right? Because people are people. People are people. Pray with expectancy, friends. God wants to, to save. And he has commissioned us, his beloved, as his partners in his saving work, that we might share our faith with other people and see them come into a saving relationship with God. If you don't believe that God will use your prayers, then let me offer to you from the book of James, chapter 5, where he says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. You say, well, pastor, I'm not very righteous. Let me tell you something. You're not righteous at all. Let me just remove any cloudiness of doubt you might have about that you're not righteous at all but because of Jesus you're made righteous and his righteousness is put on you and when you pray in the name of Jesus and you pray by the will and the work of his name friends that is a powerful prayer that brings people from death to life because God is in the midst of that working Pray expectantly. Number five, pray unceasingly. Paul says in Colossians 1.9, we have not ceased to pray for you. Prayer, friends, is a tool that God uses in the lives of his people both to shape and form them and to accomplish his mission through them. This bookmark is a simple tool to remind us of that. You see two or three lines under that top list of pray. I just want to encourage you today, this week, don't wait. Just say, God, who am I supposed to be praying specifically for this week? And take this and write their name down. Let me tell you why I want you to write it down. Because if you don't, you'll be able to forget it. And then you won't feel any kind of sense of obligation or responsibility. But as followers of Jesus, we are responsible and we're, we're accountable. And we need to put ourselves in a place where God will use us. Would you write this down, Christian? The names of those that God wants to use you for. To pray specifically for salvation in their life. Number two. The second principled practice is invest. If we look at verses 3 through 9, let me go there and read that for us so we have an understanding. 
He's told them to pray, and then he tells them this, go your way. Where does that, what does that sound like? Sounds like the Great Commission, doesn't it? Go and make disciples. As you go is literally how the Great Commission starts. I'm telling you, the Great Commission was one of the most familiar phrases that the Christians had heard uttered out of Jesus' mouth. And here he's given it to them early. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and you receive... And they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now, let me, let me qualify something that I'm about to say here by simply saying this. I understand that this passage of scripture and even these principles I'm teaching you today can be applied in a number of different ways and also in a number of levels. So missionaries that leave their principal culture of birth and they cross cultural barriers of language and geography and into other areas where they have to learn a new language and a new culture and all those things, this has very specific application for them and how they go about finding the work of God. But listen, God doesn't do on the other side of the world what he's not already doing here. And we hold a deep conviction that while God does call some to leave their principal culture, he calls all of us to be involved in that, in the sending. But before he ever pulls us out to lead us there, he's equipping and training us here in the everyday in and out of our life. And here's how we say it at LifePoint. Before you will become a missionary, you will be a missioner. You will live for the mission of God in your life each and every day. Because that's what God has called us and redeemed us to be as Christians. That's what the word Christian means. Follower of Jesus. And so we invest our lives is what he's teaching us here. He says, don't take a money bag, don't take sack or extra shoes and greet no one. Is he saying be, uh, be woefully dependent and rude and unwise? No, he doesn't give permanent instructions here because uh, just a few chapters later, he'll actually send them back out and he'll say, oh, you're gonna need a money bag, you're gonna need an extra pair of shoes, an extra uh, coat because you're gonna be gone a while, you know? So he's not laying down a hard and fast rule here, but he is teaching them from the very early instructions of the training. Uh, it's kind of like two-a-days without full uniforms, you know. You're going through the patterns of the plays and you're learning where your positions are before you put the full uniform on. And what Jesus is teaching them is, listen, before you go out and do great things for me, I want to send you out and teach you this. I'm the one that does great things. And I'm the only one that does great things. But as you go out, I will work great things through you. Be dependent upon me and what I want to do. That's what Jesus is teaching them here. And so he identifies this first principle of importance to discern where do I invest my life. If, if I'm praying and that next level of obedience is investing, how do I know where to invest my life? And he says this, as you go, lead with the greeting of God's peace. And as you lead with that greeting, some will receive it and some will reject it. Where it's rejected, move on. Where it's received, don't move at all. 
For receptivity to God's peace marks the place and marks the person where God is working. Where peace is rejected marks the absence of God's active work at that time. Now this is important for us, friends, at that time. Receptivity to God's peace. Here's how I want you to use it, Christian. Discerns his active presence at work and it marks for you where he is leading you to invest your life with gospel labors. Forever and evermore, not necessarily, but just for the moment in which you're living and that's what matters here and now. Delayed obedience is always disobedience, friends. Don't worry about tomorrow and put that in front of Jesus when he's leading you today where he wants you and what he wants you to be involved. In. That's what this principle of peace that we lead with teaches and trains us in. As we invest our life, it is expressing our obedience to God's initiative to love others as God has loved them. You've seen the, the, the cliche, never, uh, you, you know, always be kind to people because you don't know what they're going through. Well, that's a pretty good uh, uh, way to live your life because you don't know. But when we apply that in this Christian setting, it says to us this. You don't know what God's doing in their life and how he's using the circumstances and the situations in their life to bring their awareness of their need for him. And what he wants you to do is enter into that in the way that you invest your life in that relationship with them so that you can point them to Jesus. You see, God doesn't leave it to us to determine where or with whom we work. He knows. Ephesians 2 verse 10 tells us this, that he created us. He's redeemed us to do good works, which he determined before the foundations of the world. Long before you ever became you, God had already predetermined and ordained where he would use you in this point in history, in this day of your life. And he's calling you to join him where he's at work. You don't have to wonder if God will show up. He got there before you did. You just need to stay focused on you getting there when God leads you there. And that's what the principle of peace is all about. Leading us to invest our lives. This principle of God's peace does two things for us. It guides us and it guards us. The first way it guides us is that it guides us to where God is leading us. Where his peace is received, remain, Jesus says. Where his peace is rejected, move on. Move on. You see, sometimes as you're discerning his peace, I want to caution you not to confuse ridicule with rejection. Because usually where God's peace is present and he's working, ridicule will be all around it. It's important Because sometimes we'll let ridicule be enough to tell us to move on when God's peace is present and right in the midst. And sometimes it's the harshest ridiculer that God is doing the greatest work in. But but friends, we won't see that if we just look at people and situations with our own eyes. We've got to see them the way God sees them, with compassion, as white, ready for harvest. And that's where we invest. It's also important, friends, because sometimes we'll receive rejection, but we won't move on for other reasons. You see, only where God's peace is are we to remain. And where God's peace is rejected, 
we are released by God to move on. Now, in our lives, that might be a person that you see every day or once a week. You go, how do you move on? I'm not saying you completely alienate that person. What I am saying is don't focus the investment of your life with gospel labors in that situation and that circumstance. God's peace is present means we faithfully and relentlessly invest. God's peace absent, we move on. That's how it guides us. Let me tell you how it guards us, and I'll pick up on something I just said. Because when we obey to move on, where we may be inclined to remain, we try to do something for God instead of doing something with God. Even Jesus in the Gospel of Mark looked at city and said, I can do no work here because of your unbelief. And you know what he did? He moved on and he kept the work up. We find people we like at times and then we label our relationship. Well, this is a relationship I'm going to keep and I'm going to do everything I can for God in this relationship. But we haven't taken the time to ask, God, is your peace present? Is this a place you want me to remain to invest my life? Or is this just a place where they're rejecting you and I need to redirect my energies and my investment in a different place, in a different way? But what happens so often is we remain where we even know God's peace is not there because God is faithful to lead us as well as he is to show up where he is calling us. And sometimes we remain because it satisfies some desire for us. We like to be around these people or we like to be known with or among or of these people or we like the friendship and what it does because maybe we're coddling some kind of a sinful habit or practice in the midst of that. And so we want to justify it and rationalize what we're doing by God, I haven't sensed your peace here, but I like being here. Why don't you get it here as quickly as you can? And all the while, what you're doing is you're elevating that situation or that relationship above the lordship of Jesus. And you're going, I'll do whatever you call me to do, Lord, but I will not obey you here, so don't mess with that. Are you saying, Pastor, would you actually say God would have us move on when people have rejected our testimony and and the peace of God? I, I would say absolutely. He sure does. We see it throughout the scriptures. Let me tell you why. Because until a person comes to the full indulgence of their sin and sees the separation from God and the darkness of the depravity of that routine and pattern of thinking, until they see how lonely and cold it is in the darkness of this world when the world uses them up and throws them out on the trash heap, they'll not understand their need for God. And some people are so entwined in their sin that they're still on the high peak of the pleasure. But let me tell you what comes after a high peak, a deep, dark pit that you fall into. And friends, we can love them and we should love them. But until someone comes to realize that the promises of this world are never going to provide what they say and that there must be By the demand of the very way we are created, a love that actually satisfies the need I feel in my life, they may want nothing to do with what you have to offer them. I didn't say stop praying for them. I just said don't waste the investment of your life here and now. Why? Because God's either got someone else or he's got something else he's going to bring into that. 
Don't tell God, I love them more than you do. I'm going to do your work for them. You're not God, and neither are we. Where God's peace is present, no matter how dark or heavy or hard the ridicule, don't move until he releases you. Where God's peace is rejected, don't spend another moment. That's what Jesus is teaching us here. And he, by his spirit, helps us to discern how he is working and when he is working and where. The presence of God's peace is our sole marker to discern the point of our investing. When God's peace is present, faithfully and relentlessly invest. When God's peace is absent, move on. Let me dial this into three specific applications. Learning to discern God's peace begins by surrounding your life with God's people. It's not just about knowledge. It's not just about experience. It is whole life immersion. And when you surround your life with the people of God through the church, what you're doing is you are beginning to, shall I say in a comprehensive way, feel what it ought to feel like to be around God's people, to, encur- to be encouraged and to encourage, to serve and to be served as it should be. And when that's not present, you'll know it because you'll sense a need for it because you've experienced it. That's the first way you learn to discern God's people. Number two, cast as much gospel seed as possible. Be generous with your seed casting of the gospel. Share it with everyone I'm not talking about don't share the gospel. Cast as much gospel seed as you absolutely can, but continue only where God's peace is received. You'll find good soil that God wants to grow a great harvest there. And number three, where God's not working, move on, but stay where he is present. The Spirit of God will teach you how to apply this. And the third Before I move to that, let me ask you this. Is there anyone under pray that you could honestly say, I I know there's no doubt that God's leading me to invest my life into them? It might be a simple conversation. It might be inviting them over for dinner. It might be getting together for uh, some, some reason, but it gives you the opportunity to further that investment that you have in them. What about you, friend? Is there someone God would lay on your heart, has laid on your heart, that you can invest in? And just to begin to share a faithful witness with them. The third principle for practice is engage. It's engage. In chapter 14 of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells a parable about a master who creates a great feast and a great banquet. And he tells his servants, deliver these invitations. And he takes them to all the important people around, to his colleagues, to his co-workers, to his neighbors, to the people that he's in networking with and those kinds of things. He says, take them out. And everyone that comes back is a reason and an excuse why they can't come to the banquet. And it kind of miffs the master, just to be quite honest. And so the master says to the servants, okay then, if they won't come, 
I want you to take these invitations and go into the streets and you invite anybody that you come into contact with. I don't care what their social status is. I don't care what their means are. I don't care what they look like, what they smell like, how they live. I don't care. You give them to every person that you can give them to and you implore them to come. And so when all of the invitations are given, they come back to the master and they say, we've invited them. What do we do now? Because there is more room. The master says, then you go to the alleyways and you go to the dark corners of this world and you find people and you don't just invite them, you persuade them that the greatness of the banquet is so important they wouldn't want to do anything other than to come to the feast. You see what Jesus is saying, when we engage people with the gospel That it's not about what we can do or how well we can present ourselves to them. But it's just simply bearing out of the investment that we have made. It is bringing them into an engagement with Jesus Christ by the hope that he gives to their life. And by what he can do in their situation or circumstance to bring them into a relationship with God. And friends, some of you don't believe me. But I'm telling you, not because I say it, but because God has said it. God does want to use you to bring people into saving faith with Jesus Christ. You say, how do I know? Because he redeemed you to be a faithful witness. Will you engage people with your personal testimony, with the gospel, to invite them to church, invite them to community group, have coffee and a conversation where you can talk about your faith, whatever it may be, friends. Help them engage with Jesus to know new life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you not only save us, that, that's in immeasurably and inconceivably great but you invite us into your saving work not that we can save others but Lord you use us to bring others to saving faith and God I pray that you'll make that known now and even in this message you're putting names and faces on people's minds that you want us to pray for that you want us to invest in and that you want us to engage with the gospel make that clear Holy Spirit And for anyone who's here today who's never repented of their sin, placed their faith in Jesus and received the gift of eternal life, I pray that today they'll do that. Friends, if you're here today and you don't know God by a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, I'm telling you, I'm pleading with you, don't leave here until you do. A simple prayer that you believe that Jesus is God's son, that he died for your sins. A simple acknowledgement that your sin has separated you from God and that you want to be saved from that sin. And then simply to say, thank you, Jesus, for saving me because he promised he would and he does to all that pray that prayer. That's how you become a Christian, friends. And we want to encourage you in that. If you've prayed that prayer today, would you come forward and, and let me know after the end of the service? I'm not going to point you out or embarrass you. I just want to love on you and pray with you and counsel and encourage you. For now, let's stand together and respond to the Lord in singing.